please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13. Mark, chapter 13. I'm going to begin in verse 14 and then read through the end of the chapter. Mark, chapter 13, beginning in verse 14. And even as we heard in Gavin's opening, this confession, this is, this is God's testimony about himself, even his very word. Mark 13, verse 14. The words of Jesus Christ. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, Let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the, for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, And the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning the day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come in, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. 
And what I say to what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, as we read these heavy and powerful words, we are confronted with the triviality of so much of our attention. Lord, you have brought us to your word, which testifies to yourself, and as a result, we are confronted with your very presence. O oh Lord, we, we pray that you would help us to reverence you as we hear your word. Lord, there are many things to pray for, many burdens we all bear, concerns and cares, both for our families and marriages, for the people of this church, for the people in our neighborhoods and in this city, for people across this nation, and for people around the world. Lord, there are many things of which we feel weighted down and burdened, but, O oh Lord, the burden of your word is greater. And we pray that your word would be felt and that your very glory and presence would be the most weighty thing that rests upon our shoulders. You and your glory. So we ask, as we are simple people here, with simple Bibles and simple attention spans, we ask that you would powerfully work to do something that the scientists can't explain, that you would do something supernatural by your Holy Spirit and bring your word with all of its weight, even upon us, with the gravity of your own glorious presence. Do this now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. When we look at the Bible, which is the record of God's unfolding revelation in history, when we look at the Bible, it's sort of like driving out to the Rocky Mountains. That's kind of how the experience is. You drive through that Bow Valley corridor, and you see one of those great epic peaks right in front of you. I mean, they're just so stunning. They just rise up, piercing the sky. But then as you move to a different spot, maybe you've pulled off on the side of the road, or you know, you're shifting around, or maybe you've driven a little bit further, you look at another mountain peak, and it, it shows up maybe behind the first one, and then you get out your you get out your phone, or if you're really serious, you get out your camera. You get out your phone and you try to capture these epic mountains. And you look at them in all their stunning glory. And, you know, you get your phone out and then you got that little square on there and you're trying to 
you know, where do I put that little square of focus? Do I, do I put it on the first one or on the second one or on the third one? Where, where should I put it? Or at least that's me. I can't run the thing. So, but as you focus on the near one, then the one further beyond it becomes blurry. And then when you focus on the one further beyond, the one in front doesn't seem to have as much definition. And this can seem how it is when God reveals to us these mountain peaks of redemptive history, the events of God's timeline, really the peaks of his own prophecies. Now Mark chapter 13 is one of the most difficult chapters in all the Gospels, and I would say in all the Bible. Uh, This week I found a 260-page book on the history of interpretation of Mark 13. Fun times. The challenge which this chapter presents is that in verses 1 through 13 that we looked at last week, there was a great deal of detail given about the destruction of the temple and the prospects for the disciples at that time. Now, we can kind of splice in a commentary based on those verses that we see being fulfilled later on in the later New Testament. So, for example, if you look at verse 9, verse 9 is literally fulfilled in the events recorded in the book of Acts, for they will deliver you over to councils, which Stephen, you remember, he literally faced in Acts chapter 6. And, they will, and you will be beaten in synagogues, which the disciple Jason literally faced after Paul's visit in Acts chapter 17. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, which Paul did himself in Acts 24 and Acts 25, he stood before Felix and before Festus, these governors, and before King Agrippa. Even then, of course, Paul later appealing to go to the, you know, the big king, the, the king of kings in the Roman Empire, the emperor. And all of this to bear witness before them. Now, as we noted last week, the great commission of verse 10 says this, The gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Well, that that still seems apparently to be uncompleted. But the need for the Lord to give help to Christians on trial, as uh, verse 11 said, was was evidenced by Paul himself when he said in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 17, he said that he had been abandoned at trial by his friends, but he said, but the Lord stood by me, he said, and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The point being is that we see a great deal of fulfillment in the early days of the church after the words of Jesus were spoken, 
after his resurrection, but before the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Now, Paul, he likely wrote 2 Timothy in about maybe 68 or 69 A.D., before the temple in Jerusalem were destroyed by the Romans, just as Jesus predicted, of course. But these experiences have continued to be known and to be felt ever since 70 A.D., down to our own day. All of these things, all of these persecutions and trials and difficulties, we've all experienced them and we can see through history, just as the gospel has continued to be proclaimed to more and more nations, but not all. So, so the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., it seems like this, this rising mountain peak that casts a shadow on everything else. And with that in view, it's difficult maybe even to see, get any other mountain peaks in focus. But then we come to verse 14, our passage today. And the following, as we look at this, uh, we may be surprised at what we find. Or you might just think, Clint's just totally wrong. Now, that, that may, you might clearly conclude that at the end of this message, and that's fine. But Jesus said in verse 14, you see, but when you see, and there's that phrase, the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Wow. I mean, this phrase, the abomination of desolation, it is our focal point. But note that whatever it is, the result is going to bring judgment and chaos upon the Jews of Judea as the rest of, verse four, of verses 14 through 18 indicate. So whatever we figure out this abomination of desolation is, there, it's, it's trouble for Jews in Judea. doesn't matter when you want to place that trouble, that's what happens afterwards. That's what verses 14 and 18 show. But what is an abomination? I mean, in our day and age, you, people just don't even have that as a category. I don't know if there's anything that anybody would think is an abomination. Nobody thinks there could be anything that bad. But generally, an abomination is, is not just a sin, but a despicable sin, a, a sacrilege, a, a, a high-handed blasphemy. The phrase is literally the abomination that makes desolate. It leaves a wasteland in its wake. It is unprecedented in its consequence. The desolation is a devastation. And that is what we're, what we're seeing here. But what is the abomination? Well, the phrase comes directly from another apocalyptic section of Scripture, from Daniel chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 11, Daniel 12. Now, Matthew has this same account, and he includes the reference to Daniel in Daniel 9.26. Daniel 9.26 says this, 
after, this is all prophecy, all looking to the future, after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. I'm still in Daniel 9, verse 27. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Wow. (laughs) It's just heavy duty. It's pretty epic. Now, that, those verses, they seem, and back in Mark 13, it can seem clear to me when I read them until a different interpretation is suggested to me, which I also find convincing, and so it leaves me confused about what is the abomination of desolation. So I'm just admitting uh, with all honesty the challenge here. But from Daniel's time, it was recognized later on that a, a Greekish or Hellenistic, uh, the Seleucid pagan king, Antiochus Epiphanes, he had come as a he, he you know in the as Alexander had conquered all of the East, he, he had successor generals, and out of those successor generals, there was two one two that emerged. There was Seleucus and and Ptolemy. And Seleucus was in the north, and so from Seleucus's family, the Seleucids, there was these Greek guys who then dominated in then what we would view as Judea. So they're, they're pagans. They're not Jews, they're pagans. And this Antiochus Epiphanes, he came, and he sees all this Jewish wor- worship going on, and he institutes pagan worship. And so that's, that's abominable that he would do that at the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. And so because of these, this paganizing and Greekifying of Judaism and the sacred places of Judaism, as a result, there was a revolt by the Jews. It was called the Maccabean Revolt, Judas Maccabeus. So there was this Jewish resistance that occurred. Now you might not know about that because it's in kind of in between the time of the Old Testament and the New Testament. So you it's not you don't you're not aware of that. There's that gap in between there. Some of the some of the material comes from what's called the Apocrypha talking about the Maccabean revolt. It's not very reliable. It's better to rely on on historians of the of the era. But you have this Maccabean revolt because of this sacrilege. So, so this pagan sacrilege, it, it looms large whenever anybody thinks about Jesus' use of this phrase, the abomination of desolation. So Jesus here in Mark 13, when he's talking about it, is he saying that there's going to be a coming pagan king who would desecrate the Jerusalem temple do it again, just, just like 
that pagan Seleucid king did? Is that what he's talking about? Is he saying, yeah, you can expect pagans to come? If so, we would expect then that the abomination that Jesus is predicting would be the Romans, with all their paganism, the Romans coming in and destroying even the temple in 70 A.D. Is that, is that the pagan stuff coming in? Is that the sacrilege? Well, many people think that. Or, was the sacrilege not fulfilled in 70 A.D.? Maybe it's still to be fulfilled even to this day. We can still look forward to its fulfillment. It requires, of course, a temple to ruin. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but you know there is no temple there now in Jerusalem. It needs to be rebuilt. And today there are many people who are looking for the time when the temple in Jerusalem will be rebuilt. rebuilt. But of course, the only problem is that the Temple Mount is controlled by Muslims. The Dome of the Rock, it's there. So, we've got to get the Dome of the Rock out of there in order to rebuild the Temple in order for somebody to come in and commit the abomination of desolation. There's a lot of stuff has to go on. Now, in all of this, I studied many of these things, but Peter Gentry, who's a, he's actually a Canadian guy, Old Testament scholar, who I know a little bit. Uh, followed, he, I followed after him when I was teaching at Toronto Baptist Seminary. He taught Josh Carey, I think, when Josh was at seminary. He's published an argument which I find is the most satisfying of all these explanations. And he makes the argument that the abomination is what I would say the mountain peak, the highest mountain of all abominations. It's the worst of the worst. What is the worst of the worst? Tony Lane said the Semitic expression used in Daniel describes an abomination so detestable it causes the temple to be abandoned by the people of God and provokes desolation. Now, you think for a second. What is the worst of the worst? Is it a Jewish temple intruded by pagans? Is that the worst? Is that the worst thing in the universe? Is that the worst thing that could ever happen? Or, or... Is it the repeated refrain from the Gospels of the Messiah who is rejected by His own people? By His own people. John 1. He came to His own and His own received Him not. Jesus speaking of Himself, Matthew 16, He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day be raised. Or John 8, Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of 
God. John 8, 47. And then you know what they were going to do at that point? They were going to kill him in the temple by stoning him. So by definition, what is the worst of the worst? What is the sacrilege of sacrileges? What is the abomination of abominations? It's got to be killing your own Savior. Killing your own Savior. That is the abomination that desolates. But you say, now you're thinking, okay, all right, Clint, you're kind of taking us in this direction, but what about the temple? Because we saw, you know, the, the, the whole discussion was started by talking about the stones of the physical temple. So what about the stones? Is the abomination to do with the temple rather than Jesus? But you recall John chapter 2 when Jesus cleansed the physical temple. The Jews said in John chapter 2 and verse 18, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered in John 2.19, He answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, It has taken us 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? And then John adds in verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. What is the abomination that makes desolate? What is the highest awful peak in all the mountain ranges of possible sacrilege? Paul said, none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. 1 Corinthians 2.8 The crucifixion of the Messiah was literally the abomination of desolation against the true temple, Jesus Christ. Now, Professor Gentry makes a case connecting the literal timing of Daniel's prophecy and the literal fulfillment in Jesus' crucifixion in 33 A.D. That calculation is beyond the scope of what I'm doing this morning. And you're saying, great, I don't want to get into the 70 weeks. I can't handle it. But, but it's very clear from our passage and from history that the consequences upon the Judean population were catastrophic, leaving them desolate as then God judged the Jewish nation for this abomination that left all of their privilege and all of their hope wasted. Do you realize that when Jesus was crucified 
from that point onward, Judaism, Judaism from that point onward would be a dead end for anyone seeking God. It's a dead end. I know there's TV preachers that say, oh no, the, the Jews, they just got to be just staying being Jews and they're all going to be saved. No, there is no name under heaven by which men must be saved. It's Jesus Christ. And if they crucified Christ and reject Him, it's a dead end now. So I'm saying Jews can't be saved. All the early church were Jews. But they believed in Jesus Christ. They left Judaism for Christ. What a desolation. Gentry summarizes, he says this, Strangely, desecration of the temple similar to that of Antiochus Epiphanes in the Greek Empire is perpetuated by the Jewish people themselves, resulting in the destruction of Jerusalem. These events are fulfilled in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. He is the coming king. His crucifixion is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And the basis of the strong or the new covenant with many. Gentry says, his death is not for himself, but rather vicarious. The rejection of Jesus as Messiah and the desecration of him as the true temple at his trial by the high priest result in judgment upon the Herodian temple carried out eventually in AD 70, unquote. So it's fun when you can find then an interpretation that, you know, is satisfactory. And then you keep reading the Bible and then it's like, oh, but I don't know if this fits. It can be challenging. But if we accept Dr. Gentry's very Christ-centered conclusion and this judgment incurred on Israel for the crucifixion of their own Messiah, we still have difficult pieces to this puzzle in Mark 13. Now, we can see verses 14 to 18, you see there in Mark 13, that the terror and the flight, that all makes sense. Everybody... You know, they're bugging out. It's terrifying. But there is a term in verse 19 that every churchgoer knows. Every churchgoer who has ever seen a prophecy chart, every churchgoer who has ever seen that old series of movie movies called Left Behind, Kirk Cameron, You know, you, know what the, you know what the term is. The term is tribulation. Isn't there one called tribulation force? It's like, oh yeah, awesome. You want to be in the tribulation force. Sign me up. Verse 19. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. 
Now, nothing's going to compare to the death of the God-man, Jesus Christ. There's just nothing else. You know, nothing is going to rank higher at the top of any list of tribulations. The Greek word thlipsis, it's the same word that's used of the the distress and pain of childbirth in John 16, 21. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish or the tribulation, the thlipsis, for joy that a human being has been brought into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take that joy from you. Jesus is talking about the joy after He's resurrected. There is a tribulation at the cross. But for those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ risen from the dead, there is great joy after that tribulation. We just just sang all these songs. We, We sing in these glowing terms about the cross, about that horrific tribulation of Jesus' own passion and sufferings. But we rejoice because we're on the other side of it. Nevertheless, the tribulation of verse 19 has often been cast forward, not only to the future beyond Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, but also to either a perpetual tribulation which disciples will face, or a far distant tribulation which Christian disciples may escape, you know, via rapture, so supposedly. So, Luke 21, verse 22, which is a parallel pla- parallel passage. Luke, in recording what Jesus said, it is referred to this time of tribulation as the days of vengeance. The days of vengeance. They are a great distress, a time when Gentiles would trample Jerusalem until a cryptic endpoint is fulfilled. Until, it says, the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Now, however long this tribulation is, according to our passage in Mark 13, the Lord has mercifully cut the day short, saying, but for the sake of the elect whom He chose, He shortened the days, verse 20. Now, at this point, the elect, the chosen, the set apart, must be those who are chosen as God's own in Christ. He says, Ephesians 1.4, Even as He chose us in Him from the foundation of the world, Paul said, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. So, all of this 
is this mercy applied in the midst of this tribulation is for the sake of the elect. Now last week we overviewed the threat of false messiahs who could potentially mislead even the elect believers, as it says here in verses 21 to 23. But let me, let me just summarize what I think this, this passage and the teaching of our Lord Jesus is getting at, because there's been a lot of, a lot of information coming at everybody. The abomination of desolation was not the pagan standards of the Roman army in the Jerusalem temple primarily. I don't think it was that. Instead, it was the sacrilegious rejection of Israel's Messiah and the abominable desolation of the true temple, which is Jesus Christ. So just summarizing here. When the Jewish people and the Jewish leadership yelled, Crucify Him! They were replacing the glory of God with what is most detestable to God. Not just a physical idol, but the idolatrous pride of man. That is the abomination. The idolatrous pride of man. You're not the boss of me. You're not, you're not my Savior. You're not my Messiah. You're a threat to me. I'm going to kill you. That is the response of the Jews whom Jesus came to in that time. This treachery, and it is treachery, it brought desolation on the desolator. That's Daniel's phrase. So that Jerusalem was surrounded by Gentile armies and the Temple Mount that they had such pride in has never been in Jewish hands again. Just let's take the evidence of it. Jews then were scattered across the world. And although you have then this repatriation after World War II, brought back to Judea, people over in Israel, they continue to reject the Messiah. And so, what has happened now is that it makes them no different than the Gentiles they claim to differ themselves from. Now, what about the second coming? Because that's where we get into then verses 24 to 27. We are told then about the coming of the Son of Man. I think this coming, I think it is referring to the second coming of Christ. A second coming that the angels announced to the disciples after Jesus went ascending up to heaven. Acts 1.11. They said, men of Galilee, why, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him going into heaven. That's why you don't see Jesus this morning. Because he's in heaven. Historically, he ascended into heaven and he's there. Now, 
In Mark 13, listen for two words, two words in Mark 13, 24 and through 26. Two words, the word after and the word then. Verse 24, but in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken and then... Then you will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Now, of course, some would say this is, this is simply the, what happened after Jesus was crucified, the tribulation of the cross. Although it does seem to be, as you get into verse 26, the idea of the Son of Man coming uh, it's a coming, and he's already come in his first coming. So there is a, a, a then coming, another coming, a second coming, it seems to be, from verse 26. But all of this is after this thalipsis, this tribulation. And so this means that I am post-trib, if you know what that generally refers to, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. I'm post-tribulation, after the tribulation. This is when the Son of Man is returning. Now, of course, there's all this rich background to the term Son of Man. Just even the use of that phrase. And I don't have time to unpack it all. But suffice to say that even the term Son of Man refers back to Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, just listen to even this spectacular few verses. Daniel 7, beginning in verse 13, about the Son of Man. Here's this vision given to Daniel. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples Nations and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Well, that sounds like the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. We see that knees aren't bowing to Him right now. But according to Philippians 2, they will. If not in salvation, then recognizing their judgment that God has judged them. And they'll have to recognize Jesus as Lord in judgment, not savingly, but as those who have been judicially punished for eternity in hell. So we are thinking about the second coming. And it makes sense then in verse 27, if we see this second coming in view, Mark 13, 27, then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Sounds to me like it's a gathering of all who believe in him. All who believe in him, not just in those moments who's there right in front of him, but all from the ends of heaven. This is the second coming. Jesus is coming back again. Notice I didn't say he's coming back again and again. 
Actually, that was a theology joke that nobody got. Is Jesus coming again, or is he coming again and again? Is he coming again, kind of rapture thing, kind of comes halfway, and then he comes again after that? Throw a few more in there. I don't know. Godly, wise people think he's coming again and again. But it is best for us all, I believe, to simply focus on the imminent, that is near, return of the Son of Man to consummate his dominion and gather the elect to himself forever. One of the things of people who talk a lot about Jesus coming again and again, coming to rapture his people and then coming again finally, is at least they talk a lot about the, the imminent return of Christ. There's an expectancy that Jesus could come back today or this afternoon or tonight or tomorrow. And it is something I've thought a lot about even though I don't accept the again and again view anymore. I used to hold that view. But even in spite of that, I think for most of us, we've completely lost that. We've completely lost any sense of living in light of the fact that Jesus could come back and I face my Maker. And so we carry on and we do this kind of religious stuff, but everybody's just living their lives, living for today, not living in light of the judgment, not living in light of the end of days not living in light of the truest reality. Now what is forming is the idea that the betrayal and the crucifixion of the Messiah brought days of vengeance and what Paul in Romans 11 calls a hardening on Israel. There's a hardening on Israel. At the same time, the time of the Gentiles, that seems to run parallel with the hardening that is on Israel. Elect Gentiles are saved to be gathered to the Son of Man, just as elect Jews in Christ are gathered to Him on the last day. And so just as I hope, I've said this often, just as I hope there will be revival of many, many Gentiles coming to faith in Christ, I expect revival of many, many Jews coming to faith in Christ. Which is good and proper. All the way along through history. But they're believing in Jesus Christ and they're being gathered into the church. This suggests then that a time of tribulation for Christian believers coexists with a time of great triumph. The true church has joy in the midst of sorrow. We sow in tears. We reap in joy. We know the tribulation of the cross. We know what it means to be identified with the cross and its tribulation. That's why Paul can say, I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. But I understand the tribulation. 
of the cross. The world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And that's how I live in light of the tribulation. But I also live in light of the joy. I live in light of the resurrection joy. This is kind of the the tension and the conundrum of the Christian. That we bear the cross, don't we? We bear the cross. It's tribulation. And yet we do it with rejoicing. We come to praise the true and living God. A lot of us would like to have it nice and neatly separated. You have the tribulation over there, then I'm done, and it's all joy and prosperity and health and happiness after that. And there's lots of people sell that to you. But God and His economy has decided that these are going to run in parallel together, and we see this in our experience and in Scripture. There is a sense then that the kingdom of which Jesus began his ministry, saying repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the kingdom has come. It's been inaugurated. And yet, it is yet to come. It is yet to be consummated. The already and not yet, of which we live in the overlap of those two ages this age and the age to come. And we live in that tension. Now in verses 28 through 31, Jesus illustrates the sense of the nearness of these things happening. And it's just like us. We, we see a tree budding and it indicates warmer weather, which is still a long ways off in Alberta. Even if you get a Chinook, you're just like, oh, this is just faking me out here. Like, this is, I know, I still got to get ready for it to be 20 below. But But the trickiest phrase in this paragraph in verses 28 to 31 is the line, verse 30, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Oh, What does that mean? Who is this generation referring to? Well, certainly it would make sense that the generation of people alive at Jesus' crucifixion who lived to see the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, it'd be those people. Jesus repeatedly described the unbelieving Jews, his fellow kinsmen, he described them as a crooked and perverse generation, which of course echoed the words of Moses in the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. So it's, it's not Jesus just pulling those, those verses out and applying them in his own day. But it's also interesting, you've been in the Philippians Bible studies, both the men and women on Tuesday nights, Paul says in Philippians 2.14, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you, Philippian believers, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of what? A crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Now, in that case, he is talking about 
Christian, Gentile believers compared to unbelievers, with possible reference specifically to the generation which Jesus spoke about in Mark 13. Now, Paul, he wrote Philippians in around 60 or 62 A.D., so he could have been limiting himself to only those people alive during the destruction at 70 A.D. But these folks are in Philippi, not in Jerusalem. And I think Mark and Philippians, as Christian Scripture circulated also for our instruction and preparation, are intended for them then as well as for us today. So the generation, I suggest, includes those in the first century who did witness many of these desolating consequences of their unbelief. But it is also the ongoing generation of people throughout the centuries who have rejected the Messiah who was to come. Paul says in Romans 1 that those folks, that generation, that ongoing generation, is without excuse. No excuse. Why do the people in this city... I, I love Alberta. I love, I love Calgary. I don't really like Edmonton. Uh, <laughs> but honestly, I mean, just being honest. Why do people in this city or in your neighborhood or your, in your family, why do they still reject Jesus? I mean, there's people sitting here. I... It's hard to figure you out because you come regularly and you're still rejecting Jesus. You're playing games. But why? Well, it's because they belong to this ongoing crooked and perverse generation. You're, you're called, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you're called, as Paul echoed Jesus' teaching, you're, you're called to shine as lights in this dark world. But then, as Jesus said in Mark 13, 31, passing away will be that world, but the Word will not. The Word will not pass away. And so we stake our lives on this Word we stake our lives on it. It's the only way that we can shine. Is by we receive the testimony of the Word that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the true temple. We don't have to take a flight to Jerusalem because He's our temple. He's our access. He's our high priest. He's our sacrifice. He's all we need. In verses 32 to 37, as it finishes out, the main theme is to stay awake then. Jesus uses the, the master-servant relationship and the analogy of a master who is away, but who can return unexpectedly. You know, with, if there's no known fixed time, 
for the master's return, the servants, they have to always be alert. They've got to be awake. Now, we, of course, we're familiar with that idea today. You know, the terms woke, being woke to social justice, or, or the idea of this awakening that needs to happen, not religiously, but people, non-Christians talk about an awakening of being awakened to all of the corruption in society. But Jesus wants his disciples to be awake to the impending abomination of his betrayal and crucifixion, not to mention the aftermath and his second coming. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, on the night of Jesus' arrest, so it's after this, he says to the disciples, it's in the next chapter, in chapter 14, verse 37, Jesus came and he, he found them. What were they doing? Sleeping. They're sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? I told you to stay awake. Not just physical sleep, but be awake to what's going on. And he's like, eh, I'm tired. Paul would say in 1 Thessalonians 5, 6, he says, so then let us, that's Christian believers, then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Paul taking Jesus' teaching and applying it directly to Greek believers in the first century. The call to being alert is very straightforward. But then there's one more hang-up in this passage. And it's nothing less than the mystery of the Trinity. Just, just to make it easy. Verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. question is, is the Son somehow less omniscient than the Father? Is the Son a lesser being like the angels in comparison to God the Father? I will say emphatically, no. The Son is fully God and knows all things. But Jesus Christ, the Son, Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son, the God-man both God and man, according to his human nature, does not have the knowledge of the time of his messianic return, since that sending knowledge, the sending knowledge of the Father, is the personal property of the Father who sends the Son. It's about the Father in his fatherliness who sends the Son. Jesus is speaking here, of his own resurrection and ascension and glorious return even before he went to the cross. It's a remarkable thing. And he did so, we're told in Hebrews 12 too, for the joy, the joy that was set before him. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame abominable shame, 
and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Friends, these are difficult things and you might have a different interpretation of these things than I do. But there are just a few things that should be for everyone to draw from this. And the first is this. Stay awake. Everything in your world is, is trying to lure you into a stupor. And you need to stay awake. Not to what Vladimir Putin says. You need to stay awake to what Jesus says. Be hanging on Jesus' words, not on Trump's words or Biden's words or Trudeau's words. I don't care whose words. Taylor Swift's words. I try, almost intentionally try not to make a Super Bowl comment in my sermons so that I can say, no, I didn't talk about the Super Bowl. And to stay awake. But secondly, and this applies to every soul here and every soul not here, unbelief is abominable. Unbelief is sin. Unbelief is not searching neutrality. Oh, I'm just kind of morally neutral here. I'm just a, I'm just a seeker. Unbelief is sin. The people of this city who are not believing, it's not, oh, well, the church needs better PR to get to them. No, the, the city is unbelieving, and their unbelief is sin. My unbelief without Christ was sin. It's abominable. The, the Messiah has come. Why are we not believing in Him? Unbelief is abominable. It's the idolatrous pride of man. But thirdly, thanks be to God for His mercy in shortening these days and the Father sending the Son to gather His elect, this elect who will be together with Christ forever. As one of the Puritans said, if Christ were not in heaven, then heaven would be hell to me. It is about being with Him. It's not about getting to, you know, fluffy clouds and harps. It is about Christ. And it doesn't matter what your eschatology is. It is about Him. So as we see these mountain peaks, friends, let us ask for God to give us the, the wisdom and discernment to know what to focus on. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we are humbled by the weight of these texts, but more so, Lord, we see your mercy that melts our heart. Oh Lord, I pray that you would melt hearts by your mercy even now, for we don't deserve it. We deserve your wrath, but you are so generous. Save us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we worship in celebration the triumph of the church because of its Lord Jesus Christ. Please rise. The Lord Jesus himself reveals what the future will be like in speaking of the new Jerusalem, the vision given to John
in Revelation 21, verse 22, says this, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. Oh, it's a dark world, but there is no night there. Will you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and that He would be your true temple? Believe on Him today. Go in peace. You're dismissed.